0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more.
2: This is MPB News.
0: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the House debates a bill to reshape the College Board, and we preview the census. Then, in today's book club, it was 53 years ago that then-Senator Robert F. Kennedy visited the poorest part of Mississippi. Hear how that experience opened his eyes to hunger in America. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A bill that would change how Mississippi's college board is selected has passed the House. Currently, all 12 members of the board are selected by the governor. House Bill 870 would divide those appointments between the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House, each selecting four members. Republican and Universities and Colleges Committee member C. Scott Bounds of Philadelphia presented the bill, which was met with contention on the House floor. Chris Bell, a Democrat from Jackson, questioned why the bill excludes input from the state colleges.
1: What what got us to this point to where we have this bill before us today? Well, gentlemen, I I think that um, obviously with the governor having 12 appointments, this puts a lot of it puts those appointments there. With the lieutenant governor having four, the speaker now would have four in the provisions. If the voters approve the constitutional amendment that goes along with this, this provides the mechanics. I believe it provides for the chamber down the end and this chamber right here to have input with those presiding officers to be able to have input to who they may want would want to appoint to. And and I'm glad you mentioned input because I see nowhere in this piece of legislation where the colleges or universities have input on who they want to serve on this board. Am I correct? Well gentlemen they they never they, they do They do, but you've got to remember that this is a constitutionally created board, the IHL Board of Trustees, okay? And obviously, the universities are going to have input with those board members, but there is no direct mechanism in here. Now, we've got a bill that will be following this if the chairman chooses to take it up that will address appointing institutional heads, but that's in another bill. And gentlemen, did you know that I filed a, a piece of legislation to get rid of IHL? I uh, was not aware of that, gentlemen. Yeah, and uh, it was triple referred, and I'm just tripping on how this one is just pops up on the screen all of a sudden today.
0: Chris Bell is a Democrat from Jackson. Democrat Gregory Holloway of Hazelhurst is also on the universities and colleges committee and opposes the bill. He also questioned how the bill would provide needed input from universities.
1: So, do you think that there should be a representative from each? University on the board since there are eight state-supported institutions? Gentlemen, I'm looking at what this bill provides for right here, okay, and what this bill provides for would change how we, how those board members are appointed from all 12 going to the governor to four going to the governor, four going to the lieutenant governor, and four to the speaker. Now, obviously, those executives of uh, the chamber here and the chamber down the hall and across the street, they would certainly have the ability and the option to to name who they want to on their appointments and if they choose to name them from all from any or all of the eight public universities i certainly would think that would be uh certainly that would be something that they would consider but i can't speak for them on that but can't they already do that uh yes they can mm-hmm. right so that won't change anything
0: Bill presenter C. Scott Bounds says the measure provides a balance in how college board members are selected. He explains the measure in further detail with our Desiree Frazier.
1: Current law, they are a constitutional body. In other words, right now, they are uh, appointed by the governor, all 12 appointees, okay? Them being a constitutional body, what 870 did was the mechanics... Or HCR 51, which is a constitutional amendment that, uh, initiative that will be maybe discussed at some point in this legislature that <clears throat> would allow for the makeup of the board to be revised. Whereas the governor has 12 appointments now, it would go to the governor, would have four appointments, the lieutenant governor would have four appointments, and the speaker would have four appointments. And that's, that's what the crux and the, the meat of 870 did.
3: Currently, how long is a term for a college board member?
1: Nine years. I think nine years, and they're staggered. The terms are staggered where you don't have a majority of the board rolling off at the same time. And uh, But now it is important to note here again that this is just the mechanics of the of, of what would happen if the constitutional amendment would pass that would allow this. That has still got to happen before this would go into effect.
3: And what would the constitutional uh, bill do
1: well. The constitutional uh, amendment would just would just simply the people would vote on it, and it would simply just do what the bill is. It, the constitutional amendment would do what the bill is asking to do, and that's revise the way that the IH, IHL board members are chosen.
3: So this is going to be a referendum on the fall ballot.
1: It could be. It's uh, it's sitting on the rules calendar now. HCR I think fifty one. It's sitting on the rules calendar, so the legislature would have to pass it to go to the ballot in November. Right.
3: Uh, some lawmakers took issue with the bill. Uh, they're concerned that uh, representation from all eight colleges and universities should be a part of the College Board.
1: Well, <clears throat> and that was a very good questions and, and good debate. Um uh, <clears throat> Obviously, the governor, with his consideration of 12 appointees, he can name who he wants, and with the advice and consent of the Senate approving them. Okay, uh, I do think that uh, with uh, the Lieutenant Governor having four appointments, the Speaker has four appointments. It gives those two bodies, the Senate and the House of Representatives, the ability to go to the Lieutenant Governor and Speaker and make recommendations from that body or from 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 them as a body. To, to their preferences um, uh, for, for those appointments. But here again, there was nothing in this bill that would mandate or nothing in the constitutional amendment that will mandate that you have two from Mississippi State or two from Jackson State or anything like that. They are still chosen at the will of the governor right now, and if this went into effect, it would be at the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker's discretion.
3: How do you feel about the bill? You
1: know, I don't. I, I can I can see the good in it. You know, I can see the good in it. Here again, I want to go back to what the intent of the bill is, and that's to give the speaker and the lieutenant governor and the governor equal playing field in naming IHL board, board appointees, and uh, uh, I, I think that gets the process closer to the people when you got members going to the lieutenant governor or going to the speaker or going to the governor, and and making their uh, recommendation known on who they would like to serve on the board.
0: C. Scott Bounds is a Republican from Philadelphia. House Bill 870 passed on a motion to reconsider. In order for the measure to take effect, voters must first pass a referendum requiring the college board create a policy for selecting university presidents. That proposal has yet to come before the full House. Coming up, we preview the census. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Starting today, Mississippi citizens will begin receiving invitations in their mailboxes to complete the 2020 U.S. Census. The count will help determine how much federal money is allocated to Mississippi, how many U.S. representatives the state will receive, and help lawmakers shape the state's legislative districts. Giles Ward is chairman of the Mississippi Complete Count Committee. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance the census will be accessible through multiple platforms.
2: Well, firstly, the census determines... So many uh, boundaries in our political subdivisions, whether you live in a city that is divided into wards, everyone lives in a county that has supervisory districts. We live in state Senate and state House of Representatives districts, our Supreme Court justices, our transportation commissioners, our public service commissioners, and uh, many other elected officials are. Elected from districts in which the population controls the boundaries. It also is determinative on how many members of the United States House of Representatives any state is allowed, and uh, that is critically important to us. And then you can move into the economics, and it has been reliably and credibly determined or estimated that for every person in the state of Mississippi who is not counted in the census we will lose we being the state of Mississippi will lose $5,000 per year or approximately $50,000 every 10 years when you factor in that the census numbers are current for 10 years it only comes up once every 10 years fifty thousand dollars per person for everybody that is not counting so when you start thinking about the implications and our representation in statewide offices as well as the national offices and then the economics of uh, federal funds that come down to support roads bridges highways hospitals fire departments it supports uh, uh nutrition programs for young children it supports uh, Medicare. It supports uh, just so many of the programs that, that citizens of Mississippi are dependent upon. We can't afford to miss a single person.
5: And uh, can you tell me why Why is it so such a high number per person? You said 5000 per year for every person who doesn't fill it out. Why is that number so high, and why would we be losing that much money?
2: Well, I don't think that people realize how many of the programs – that benefit mississippi citizens are funded significantly if not entirely by federal dollars and it is the uh federal dollars that come down that that impact this and the population numbers is what controls how many dollars we get
5: and now uh what what does that money go towards in the state is it is it just uh standard federal programs or is it other like local community programs
2: well it it I suppose you can clarify it as federal programs since it's federal dollars, but it it can go it goes to highway improvements, it goes for roads and bridges. Many of the programs that support local hospitals come from federal dollars that that, that come from different programs, as well as uh, police departments, uh, public safety. Uh, it's. We have been in a cost-sharing program with the federal government for as long as I can remember. Uh, That's basically the federal income taxes that citizens pay go to Washington, and then the uh, Congress distributes that money back to the states for the many different programs that they approve.
0: Giles Ward is chairman of the Mississippi Complete Count Committee. Leaders in rural areas like the Mississippi Delta are stressing the importance of being counted. Chuck Carricker is the mayor of Tunica. He is promoting the census on social media and is supplying handouts through the city's water bills. He tells our Kobe Vance the town relies heavily on a block grant that receives funding based on census results. A lot of
4: government programs are based on population, and that's what we stress to our citizens. Uh, I I know that a lot of citizens don't want the big brother effect looking, you know, knowing everything about their lives or whatever, but we certainly want them to, we want to be counted. We want everybody to be counted. There's a, the program called the gasoline tax is based on population, uh, and it just gives us an accurate number of how many people we actually serve. We have to uh, complete uh, rural water reports, Mississippi water reports for the Department of Health as well, and it's all based on population. And instead of guessing that it's two people in a household or two-and-a-half per household, we like an accurate number, and it, it just helps us for our government programs. Uh, rural Transit Authority is the same way. They need the, uh, the accurate numbers to be able to have the funding for their programs.
5: Do you expect there to be a population growth in your town?
4: I think we're going to be kind of flat uh, from the 2000 to the 2010 census. We dropped uh, 30 people, and I, I could actually drive around town and show you where that loss was. Uh, I, I think we're going to be flat if we can get people to fill um, out to form, uh, and we may be up a little bit. You know, where 10 years ago we had families of you know, young married couples, family of two. Uh, now they 've got some children, so you know it'll be a family of four so you know hopefully we can uh we can get folks to fill those numbers out
5: and now you mentioned the taxes attached to the numbers of people who help uh fill out uh, the census um what What changes we made if you have more or less people uh filling up forms
4: well it, it won't affect your property tax or or any of that sort of tax like that um, as you know, the state collects. Uh, 18 cents, 18 and a half cents per gallon off of uh, gasoline. And all that money goes to the state, and then the state sends some of that money back to municipalities. And that's what's based on population. You know, um, a town, Tunica, has a thousand people, will get a small percentage of that, where the, you know, city of Ridgeland is, or the city of Jackson. Has hundreds of thousand people, their gasoline tax is much bigger. So, you know, it's all based on population numbers. So, um, helps bring up your percentage. So, that's what we need. We need to. We need everybody to be counted.
5: Are there any other programs that the city relies on that rely, uh, that do that does look at um, government uh, census data?
4: It is the uh, community development block grant program. It is based on population uh it also has some economic factors in it, but uh it is it's it's a population driven the more people we can say we serve in a uh, certain income area uh specifically a low income area, the better opportunity we have for for getting some grants but uh it 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 all goes
5: back to numbers and what does that uh what does that block grant go towards what what programs does it fund
4: uh the community development block grant can be used for any kind of infrastructure programs. It can be used for uh, wastewater repair facilities uh, and lift stations. It can be used to expand water lines. It's got a, a wide array of things that uh, that particular program can be used
0: for. Chuck Carricker is the mayor of Tunica. Officials have scrambled to edit a potentially confusing public service announcement about the 2020 U.S. Census. In the 32nd spot, actor Morgan Freeman holds a postcard with a QR code. The notices being sent out this week by the U.S. Census Bureau are not postcards. They are blue, letter-length papers with ID numbers printed in a box. And they don't have QR codes. Mississippi officials say the mistake was an honest one and that the ad has been edited to make the QR code unreadable. Coming up in today's book club, it was 53 years ago that then-Senator Robert F. Kennedy visited the poorest part of Mississippi. Hear how that experience opened his eyes to hunger in America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, You can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Author Ellen Meacham is a longtime resident of Mississippi. She has been a working journalist for more than 20 years and a journalism instructor at her alma mater, the University of Mississippi. Prior to that, she worked as a news reporter in North Mississippi and at the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. Her experience as an award-winning newspaper reporter and researcher in Southern studies shape her perspective on the culture and people Of the Mississippi Delta. Meacham is the author of Delta Epiphany Robert F. Kennedy in Mississippi which tells the story of then Senator Robert F. Kennedy's visit to Mississippi as part of hearings on poverty in 1967. She says his experience inspired and informed his conversion to a reform-minded leader. She tells us about the origins of his mission.
3: There was initially a hearing in Washington And Marion Wright, who was a young NAACP lawyer, came to testify about Head Start and some other programs as one of these initial hearings. And she kind of went off topic. She answered the questions about Head Start, but she just looked at them very straightforwardly and said, people in Mississippi are hungry. They don't know how they're going to get through the winter. We don't know how we're we're going to feed people. Some of the changes in the farming practices meant that many of them had lost their their jobs in the fields and there was just nothing for them to do. And she said, look, they're hungry. Someone needs to do something about it. And she was very direct. So the committee decided to, to schedule, they were going to schedule several hearings around the country. And so they picked Mississippi as the first one. Kennedy had been a prosecutor. He's also a rich man's son who was used to people trying to manipulate him into thinking one thing or another. And he wanted to make unscheduled stops, and he would see a house or shack on the side of the road, and he'd say, let's stop here, and he would knock on the door and ask questions. He didn't just want to be led around by activists to places they only wanted him to see. Can
0: you share the story of him and the little boy he spoke to?
3: That was kind of the impetus, really, for the whole book. As they went from house to house in Cleveland's sort of the worst, poorest part of town uh, on the east side, they... Stopped at a home, and um, Kennedy had asked that the television cameras stay out and the photographers stay out, but some of the print reporters went on in. And as Marion Wright and Senator Joseph Clark, who was with him, talked to Miss Annie White, who had had six children there, and she had a, um, a toddler and a three month old baby. And then her older children were eating cornbread and rice when Kennedy came in, and Kennedy actually gave them a 50 cent piece with his brother's picture on it. And that was more money than they had ever seen. So the older kids got up and ran off to the store, or, you know, and had to spend on what they wanted to spend it on. But the the toddler, was there and he wasn't concerned about anything except for you know just one each crumb of cornbread or rice or beans that he could find and he he was just picking those crumbs off the floor and eating them and kennedy whose attention was always drawn to children he had ten of his own at that time he started to as he often did started Sort of talking to the child, and he, he squatted down and went down to his level and was trying to get the child to respond. But the child's very listless, focused only on those crumbs. Kennedy could look at his body and see that there was evidence of malnutrition, you know. Kennedy had a son that was almost the same age and he could tell that there was a vast difference and he was deeply touched and moved and concerned for this child and the other children that he saw.
0: Was he um, completely shocked by what he saw? Was it a complete surprise to him? It
3: was. I think it really was. He told one of his aides that he had seen poverty like that but not in America.
0: So he goes back to Washington, D.C., then what happens?
3: For him, it was a very simple kind of equation. It's like children are hungry. American children are hungry. They don't get enough to eat. We should fix that. We're a wealthy country. We should fix that. In Washington, it was much slower to try to address it than he expected. And In Mississippi, initially, the officials reacted very defensively, antagonistically, White Mississippi officials did not like the Kennedys and reacted very harshly. But the governor, even though he made some really awful statements, he also commissioned because it started bringing attention to it. Commissioned to study and found much of the on the health of children found much of the same problems. And so there was some incremental changes behind the scenes. I think a lot of Mississippi leaders sort of looked around and said, oh, wait a minute, there is a real problem here. So there was a much more attention nationally to the issue of hunger versus poverty, and it shifted the discussion, and there were changes in food stamps that came several years later where you didn't have to buy them anymore. You could get waivers if you had no income. But just raising the attention to the issue and, and pointing out that, you know, not all of America was sharing in this post-war prosperity.
0: Ellen Meacham is an award-winning journalist. She teaches journalism at the University of Mississippi. And the book is called Delta Epiphany, Robert F. Kennedy in Mississippi. Ellen, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Well, thank you so much. Glad to do it. Glad to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.